0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News.
1: China and the United States agree to a temporary ceasefire in a mounting war of tariffs. Will it yield a compromise or is it a stalling tactic? This is the issue we're tackling on this edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Sabat. Over the past several months, we've seen an escalating trade war between China and the United States, with both countries slapping taxes on a variety of goods. But trade talks between President Trump and his counterpart in China, President Xi Jinping, were held in Argentina at the G20 summit over the weekend. The dinner between the leaders was successful in one way. It bought the U.S. and the People's Republic additional time to hash out a deal. So how will this all play out? We're going to look at this from both sides of the Pacific. But first, we're going to Washington to chat with my colleague, Gina Chan. Hi, Gina. Hey, Jen. Gina, from my viewpoint, it looks like President Trump is playing a very dangerous game of chicken. Where are we so far? What has each country taxed?
0: Sure. Uh, so so far, uh, the U.S. has put on import duties on about half of all Chinese imports. So that's about 250 billion in Chinese goods. Okay. Um, that ranges from um, agricultural products to bike helmets to car seats. Uh, you you name it. Um, a lot of consumer goods are are in there, along with sort of widgets and various parts that uh, manufacturers use. Um, now, China doesn't have as many um, goods to tax because they import less from the United States. Uh, so they've gone up to about 85% of total U.S. imports, but okay. that only equals about, um, I think, $110 billion or so. Okay. So
1: have, have we started to see the effects of this? And if so, who is getting hurt the most?
0: I mean, so far, it's really uh, the manufacturers and um, in the U.S., the farmers in particular, um, they've been whacked by both uh, retaliatory levies, not just from China, but from the European Union and others as well. So they've been really struggling this year.
1: All right. So, Gina, one thing that I really would like you to talk about is how is this working for President Trump?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's been interesting. I mean, he definitely has a lot of critics, especially uh, those who are advocates of free trade. But even um, those from the Barack Obama administration no, uh, will tell you that he has actually built up a unique amount of leverage over China. And huh. it's something that um, people from the Obama administration wish that they had had um, in their dealings with Beijing. So that is actually a point in his favor. The question is, what is he actually do with this leverage, and you know so far, um, with this agreement in Argentina to give both sides ninety days to try to hash out a deal doesn 't look like um, it 's going to actually yield much, partly because um, the issues are just so complicated in terms of intellectual property theft and tech uh, technology transfers and that sort of thing, but also um, because the two sides also don't seem to have um, the same understanding of what they've agreed to. You're seeing Trump talk about reducing or cutting auto tariffs on the Chinese end and Beijing not confirming it. And hmm. then later, even Trump's advisors said that there wasn't actually a specific deal on that. Um, so even the starting terms of these talks uh, seem to be a bit confusing.
1: So. Basically, what I'm hearing then is the $250 billion that uh, Trump has targeted I- is is effectively hurting China. Is, is that true, or are-, are there other mechanisms that they can pull to kind of um, reduce the pain?
0: I mean, it, it is hurting China, but it's also, uh, in some ways, Trump is um, the beneficiary of just good timing. Um, it just so happened that uh, a lot of... Um, Issues that China had long been facing, whether it's you know the amount of debt that um, companies have built up um, just domestically, and and other issues have have just come to roost. So there was a lot in the works already in the Chinese economy that was going to slow it down, and it's actually going to be probably growing at its slowest rate since 2009. So just really after during the crisis, um, so that's not good news for them, and obviously the the tariffs um, don't help on that front. So it is definitely um, imposing some pain at a time when they were already going through some internal issues.
1: So what are the pitfalls of this, you know, using this as a kind of one-upmanship as a negotiating tactic? I mean, where can this backfire on on President Trump?
0: Well, there's just so many potential obstacles. I mean, one is just the the timeline itself. I mean, again, 90 days is so tight. Um, Mm. Trump did um, a tweet the possibility of that getting extended. I heard from sources yesterday that the best case scenario is uh, there's maybe not a deal at the end of the 90 days, but enough progress has been made that both sides feel like they can extend it and, you know, still claim that um, things are moving in a positive direction. One challenge, though, is the person who is leading the talks from the U.S. side is um, the U.S. Trade Representative Robert Lighthizer, who is probably as hawkish as you can get on Chinese trade. I would argue he's even um, tougher than White House Trade Advisor Peter Navarro, um, partly because Lighthizer is a long time uh, trade official. He served in the Reagan administration mm-hmm. as deputy U.S. trade representative. He really knows his stuff and is pretty much the only senior official in the Trump administration who knows how to negotiate a trade deal. And for the Chinese to convince him that they're actually uh, making substantive moves will be a really uh, big task because he's not going to be um, convinced by any sort of you know hollow or symbolic gestures. So why does the U.S.
1: need uh, to kind of go to war with, with China over these issues? I mean, just kind of standing back, where do we sit kind of in the world um, in terms of trade with China, and is it is it that bad? Do we really need to be doing this? I guess is my question.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, to to be fair, a lot of the issues that the Trump administration has raised are issues that, again, um, past administrations have brought up, whether it's Obama or or Bush or others, or Clinton as well. I mean, um, especially as China has gained ground on the technology front, and we've seen um, a raft of intellectual property theft cases, um, economic espionage on the part of Chinese companies and even the Chinese military. So it's been a, a long Long-standing problem. Um, the criticism, though, with uh, the current White House is that, you know, is imposing tariffs on, you know, things like bike helmets and car seats, really the way to address those problems. Yeah. Um, and it seems like, you know, now they're, the, the talks are aimed at trying to um, address some of these more complex issues. But again, these are things that usually take years to hammer out. So we'll see how much um, patience and stamina the U.S. has. Okay, I always hesitate to ask this question, but how are the markets absorbing all of this news? Yeah, it's been really interesting to see investor reaction. I mean, for a long time, they were way too optimistic about any sort of little glimmer of hope of, you know, some mid-level talks between the U.S. and China um, or something else that they could sort of pin their hopes on that this was going to get better, and not worse. And then you saw in the sort of the week's Sort of before the midterms elections here uh, in November and in the weeks leading up to the G20 meeting, that they really seem to take heart a bit more that maybe things aren't going so well and this could be a long term fight, um, Mm. along with some forecasts about sort of slowdown in global growth. Yeah. Um, So then you saw after the G20 meeting, they did predictably um, rally on the news of the ceasefire, but You're seeing sort of the aftermath of that as they absorb the news, see the differences between sort of the U.S. take and the Chinese take on what actually occurred, that I think they're becoming a bit more skeptical, which I think is the right um, sort of assessment to make at this point. Okay, Gina,
1: thanks as always for your insight. I'm sure we'll have you back on the program to discuss this matter again soon. Thanks for having me. Next up, our colleagues in Asia are going to discuss what this all means from China's perspective.
2: So I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong with Christopher Bedore. Um, We're talking about the recent conclave dinner meeting between Trump and Xi, where the two sides can't seem to quite agree on what they agreed or disagreed on. Chris, what came out of the G20 meeting? Were there any concrete concessions or did they just buy time?
3: Yeah, I, I think that there wasn't a lot concrete that came out of this. Not, not that that was necessarily a big deal. I mean, this is just a, basically a, a meeting between two heads of state, you wouldn't really expect too much concrete. But I think what the Chinese did was they came in and they had a goal of essentially pushing back the January 1st deadline for when 10% tariffs on $200 billion worth of Chinese goods would go up to 25%. And in exchange, they wanted to minimize the amount of concrete concessions that they would offer in exchange. And I think they mostly did that. I mean, they they got the, you know, take 90 days, we're going to discuss this. In exchange, I think they they offered basically, well, you had fentanyl, you had um, Qualcomm NXP, but aside from those kind of one-off items, basically what they gave the Americans was a two-part deal. A, we are going to just buy a lot more American stuff. Not clear exactly how much, but we're going to buy a lot more of it. And B, we're going to start talking about structural issues like forced tech transfer, like intellectual property protections, not agreeing on anything, but we're going to start talking about it.
2: Yeah. So it's interesting because you know, a lot of these things are, are stuff that that uh, China has been doing already. I mean, the campaign against fentanyl, for better or worse, is is not a change. Um, you know, in terms of them buying more stuff, that's gonna be a natural result of economic growth, growth, presumably. Um, but I mean, Trump does seem to think he got something out of it. He tweeted about this this commitment from China to reduce and then remove tariffs on on Chinese on American automobile imports, which are currently at at 40 percent. What's your take on that?
3: Uh, I think it very clearly wrong-footed the Chinese a bit when he said that. Uh, I think there was clear indications in the Chinese media that they were putting a block on any kind of coverage of of that tweet, probably until MoFcom or Xinhua got an official line on it. But, I mean, look, the overall picture is that um, they're, they're going to try something as um, linear in a way as they possibly can. And, and by that, I mean, A lot of the things that they're moving forward with right now, so that's uh, more market access on autos, more market access on finance, uh, a few other things. These are things that they've been talking about for years. Um, And so it's kind of like cards that they know that they have to play, that they've been waiting to play, and now they are playing them. Um, but I don't think I didn't see a lot that was really fundamentally new in the package that was kind of mooted on either side, on the uh, China yeah, side it, or it, the White it, House. I mean, the,
2: the, the auto tariffs are going the forty percent is the rate that China applied in retaliation to U.S. tariffs. So yes. if they remove it, they're just kind of yes. going back to. I mean, Ch- Chinese auto tariffs are going down to fifteen percent, regardless of this. Well, I guess we'll see about that. But um, another issue is—is is kind of you know, she has. 90 days to come up with something, um, you know, which gets you know the US through the Christmas season and it gets China through the Chinese New Year and then it will have to have something to offer and one of the big things that people are wondering about is intellectual property and specifically the tech transfer policy, um, like forced tech transfer where American companies are required to hand over you know IP blueprints whatever like Westinghouse did um, you know with its nuclear reactor plans, hand them over to the Chinese partner um, you know and then china develops a, com- a competitor out of that and that's been a big irritant um is this something you think she could put on the table what what do you think he could do here yeah i think he will almost certainly put it on the table i mean uh, step but i back mean what what would it be i mean what would it, what would you commit to uh
3: well it's not clear exactly what the mechanisms would be whether it would be a beefed up legal system or or some sort of commitment for for better enforcement i mean but the big picture here is that the strategy i think is pretty clear that they're going to take which is Of that kind of two-part deal that I outlined, the goal is to talk with the Americans and to figure out what is the minimum possible structural change that we can do in order to keep either putting off the tariff hike or or to get Trump to essentially overrule uh, the more hawkish elements of the White House. Um, and they don 't know what that is, but I think that they realize that intellectual property and forced tech transfers is going to be it going to have to be part of the deal at some point that 's ostensibly the reason that we 're even in this situation right now is of allegations of forced tech transfer so I suspect that what they 'll do is they 'll sort of announce um, a better regime for intellectual property enforcement and then present kind of a more fleshed out detail I mean, Can to... they just
2: end the joint venture requirement because that 's half of it right i mean if you 're not in a yeah. joint if you 're not required to be in a joint venture with a chinese partner you don 't you don't transfer the technology. It, to anybody exactly. It, it feeds into market access. The, right. Yeah, that's exactly the argument
3: that they make, which is, look, if you if we remove the ownership caps and you take full control of whatever your automaker or your joint venture in the securities business. Well, you don't have to do a uh, forced tech transfer anymore. So problem solved. So uh they again, but it, it just keeps coming down to like this is a very linear path. This is stuff they've been talking about before, and they're trying to aim for that minimum level of change that they can get away with in order to put off the tariff.
2: Well, and by by they here, I presumably we're we're talking about Xi and his faction, but there is there's another group of Chinese people, especially the reform camp from whom we've have been kind of muffled of late, but I mean, they they want a lot more out of this, right? They've been some of these these concessions that that Lighthizer and the and the you know the China Hawks in the U.S. are pushing for stuff that they want. I mean, take for example, you know, the massive subsidization of state owned industries, which is like the big irritant, right? You know, like these under underpricing credit to state owned enterprises so they can go out and buy strategic assets and compete and do all these things they shouldn't be able to do. Um, and it's you know that's one thing, but like for the reformers, the amount of debt these guys have gotten into. I mean. Most of China's huge debt pile is concentrated in the state sector is a problem, you know, with that and the fact that they're competing with private Chinese companies. So they want more, um, I think. You know, I, the question yes. is, like, is, do you, is, is this beating that Trump has given them, regardless of the economics of tariffs and whether it's a good idea, but is this actually likely to to push Xi to actually give concessions to his own reform camp that would also please the Americans. Oh, well, that's the great irony of all this, is that there is
3: a significant camp within China that is pro-reform, and that actually shares a lot of the uh, objectives of the Trump administration. And so, you know, even though on the surface it might seem, you know, China versus the U.S., it's it's much more complicated than it appears on the, the China side. And, you know, I think not only do the reformers kind of want a lot of those things like basically broadly speaking, for the state to start extricating itself from the economy. But I think most economists would also say that in the long run, a lot of the measures that are on the table, whether it's strengthening intellectual property rights or reducing the support to SOEs, would actually make the Chinese economy stronger in the long run. So I think you're absolutely right. And there's there's sort of an irony undergirding, undergirding well, all you this. Know, it's,
2: I mean, it's interesting. We'll see. I mean, next year is going to be really interesting because Chinese economic growth is not looking too rosy and, consumption indicators that were originally questionable are looking outright negative as far as i can tell um, like some of the industrial activities down um you know but she has definitely seems to have drawn a line around the state sector i mean he gave a speech and he was in, in Dongbei up there at like a an SOE it was an energy SOE you know and he was saying uh, you know criticizing SOEs is wrong and these are positive contributors and he doesn't he doesn't want it on the table i mean so if it's put on the table it seems like it would be a big deal, don't you think? Not just domestically, but, you know. Yeah,
3: I I think it would be. I mean, no question. He's he's made that very clear. Look, I would just say that, again, this keeps going back to the the strategy. His strategy is very apparent, which is the minimum possible structural changes to satisfy the Americans. That's what it's all about.
2: Well, I think he has to worry about his own people as much as the Americans these days. But um, thanks for talking to me, Chris.
1: That's our show for this week. Thanks to Gina Chan, Pete Sweeney and Chris Bedore for coming on the show. We extend our gratitude, as always, to our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. And join us again next week for another edition.